Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So this is Stop and Search episode six, which has come around pretty quick. And we're going to do a kinder US election special. So here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where the southern street. Hi, so this is Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with Leap UK. And I'm pretty sure there's a better way of saying that, but I've not found it yet. So here we go. This is going to be a, a loosely based US election special. We're talking to Ethan Nadelman, who is the founder and executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, the DPA. If you follow drug policy, you would know them. They need no introduction at all. They are probably the world leaders in this they have been for some time as we discussed and Ethan Nadman got involved in drug policy very very early on um, so to talk to him I compared it to drug policy royalty and that pretty much sums it up and we've got George McBride who is from Voltface and if you go to voltface.me so that's v-o-l-t-e-f-a-c-e dot me um, they are a policy hub that are going to be pretty central to drug policy reform in this country. Uh, George McBride was formerly of the Beckley Foundation, who we'll discuss that at a later episode because they're a fascinating place. Um, so let's get straight into this. I'm not going to hang around with any kind of introduction. Um, if you join me on the outro, I'm going to give you a few little heads up and a few little things to listen out for. So this is Stop a Search Episode 6, what's going to go on in the US election. So we're at the uh, Vault Face offices, um, joined by George McBride. Who, what do you do here, by the way, George? Um, it's quite startup-y here, so it's like loose fairly with uh, job titles. But uh, I'm currently running our prisons project, um, and I've got a legal background, so I look at all the criminal justice, penal system, crime aspects of drugs. Um, I've got we've got other policy people with science and. Uh, and other backgrounds, but I focus, yeah, mostly on prisons and the criminal justice system. And joining us as well, because this is of personal excitement to me, and I'm sure every, anybody that knows drug policy world, Ethan Nadelman, who is, I think, about as close as it gets to royalty within this subject, because it's like you've started doing this 
probably earlier than anybody that's still doing it. Well, probably you? before you were born. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, but it feels good because especially in the U.S. now and in some other places, it feels like there's real momentum for reform. I mean, especially the marijuana thing, the way that's changing so fast. I mean, states are legalizing, and we got something coming up in November, Election Day, that's going to be huge. So it's, uh, it's an exciting time. And it's nice coming here for London for a day or two and just feeling some new energy happening around the whole cannabis thing and some other stuff going on. So Ethan is the founder and executive director of Drug Policy Alliance, um, which, again, if you follow drug policy, you'd know it. But if not, um, go and Google it because you're probably second to none. Again, you were doing this before anybody was really noticing that the drug war was a problem. So your background was teaching and academics. Well, I'll tell you something. I actually started a long time ago when I was uh, a graduate student. I I decided to write my dissertation about international crime and law enforcement. So I talked my way into this U.S. State Department. I got a security clearance. I wrote a classified report on drug-related money laundering. And then I traveled all around Europe and Latin America interviewing DEA and local drug enforcement agents. So I kind of worked on the inside, almost kind of undercovering the undercover guys. And But my views were always the same. It was kind of the drug war is totally a, a disaster. And one way or another, we need to change it. And so one thing led to another, first as a professor and then starting this organization in some respects over two decades ago and building it up in the U.S. and also operating around the world. So what was it? What was the the linchpin moment that got you to the the realization that the war on drugs was predicating every single sector of society and was such a political issue? I mean, there was that initial moment, you know, when I'm 18 and I'm going off to college and and start, you know, smoking a... Uh, actually, was, I was going to Montreal, where it's mostly hash, not, not marijuana, and started smoking. You're just wondering, why are people getting busted for this stuff? You know, why are friends getting stuck at the border on this thing? And alcohol, which I enjoyed as well, but it was so obviously a more problematic and destructive substance for a lot of people. So that just kind of planted the seed back, you know, in my early years. And then years later, it was kind of, I, I think on some level... I realized that I needed my my intellectual pursuits, my intellectual passions to be connected to something that was going to be personal and political. And in a way, the only way in which I identified as a deviant in our society or somebody who was a criminal was in my use of marijuana or psychedelics or some other illicit drugs. And and, and at that, that time in the late 1980s, the whole country was going crazy on drugs. I mean, it, it was, I mean, truly madness. I mean, people passing prison sentences that you would expect in like the most autocratic countries, spending billions of dollars. And so that gap between what a rational thinking person would think would be a smart drug policy and what the government and the public was thinking the direction was we needed to go, that gap struck me as a fascinating puzzle, intellectually and politically and also personally. And that's what really drew me into it. So, the, I mean, the 80s is famous for just saying no. I was born in the 80s, so my drug education was framed around the Reagan era and the Thatcher era. Um, and one, one of the things we touched on last night at the Volface Lecture, which is why you're over in London, um, was the fact that there is an image perception of certain drug users. Um, so, as you said, if you're a marijuana user, you're still labelled as the scummy, um, especially in this country, I'd say, wouldn't you, George? Yeah, I think we've got a lot bigger problem in the UK with that. Uh, perception mm. of, of drug users, particularly with cannabis, because in the UK, like you said, there is an association between cannabis and laziness and the people who are more capable of coming out and being open about their cannabis use um, are often the people 
who aren't in you know, a professional job, so they can come out and be open about their cannabis users, and you get a lot more cannabis users who are uh, unemployed or working in the arts or something that allows them to have the lifestyle that people associate with cannabis already to be open about their use, whereas you've we've got just as many hard-working, motivated people using cannabis here as they do in America, but we don't have like this Californian idea where you get, you know, muscly vegans who only smoke cannabis and they won't touch a drink and they'd never go near tobacco. There's just none of that association well, in the UK. Like the analogy, 50 years ago, right, everybody in your country and mine knew a homosexual. They just didn't know they knew a homosexual. Yeah. And therefore, their image of who is a homosexual is determined by the media and by fears and by people getting exposed in men's rooms or people who are flamboyantly gay or whatever it might be. Now, everybody in our countries knows a homosexual. They know somebody who's gay or lesbian. It could be their sibling or their boss or their employer or their cousin or their neighbor or whatever. And the whole thing has become incredibly normalized. And that happened in part because people who are gay and lesbian found the, the courage to really begin to come out. I mean, it doesn't take much courage now anymore, except in certain parts of the country, right? But they found the courage, prompted in part by what happened, the trauma of HIV and AIDS. Now, with the marijuana thing, obviously that would make a huge difference as well. But as you say, the people you most need to come out are the ones with the good jobs and families who have the most to lose to, or most to fear by coming out. And that's why I sometimes fantasize. Imagine you could put like a truth serum in the water for a day and have a, a national, you know, tell mom and dad every drug I ever used, you know, or tell my kids every drug I used, right? So where it would all be, it would all come out. And then all of a sudden, the image of who's a cannabis user, or for that matter, who's a psychedelics user, or whoever took cocaine, or whoever did something else, all of a sudden, the, the popular image would shift from being, oh, it's just those screw-ups over there, we know they get high, and even if they don't get high, we think they get high, to something where, oh my God, they do, they do, they do, those leaders, those people I've respected and admired all my life, those are people who used to or still consume. So that would be transformative. And unfortunately, you know, unlike with the issue of coming out as a gay person, coming out as a, even a cannabis consumer means coming out as doing something illegal. It means, you know, the cops. It means if you got kids worrying about, you know, the neighbors whose kids play with your kids won't let their kids come over to your house anymore because, oh, their parents smoke spot. I mean, there's all the disincentives to doing that, but it needs to happen one way or another. Do you think we are getting to a normalization? I, I, from the perception I get of America, it almost seems like you don't care anymore who uses what substance, whereas I'd say over here we still really do, don't we? So would well, you, you know, I mean, what really helped so much in the U.S. was the whole movement around medical marijuana, which began in the late 70s, 80s, but then really took off in 1996 when California legalized medical marijuana. Because coming out as a medical consumer of marijuana that had a different feeling about it than just coming out as somebody who enjoys getting high, right? And the fact that the people coming out were sick, the fact that they were people living with multiple sclerosis or AIDS or going through chemotherapy or other things, that they were oftentimes older people, um, that meant that their consuming marijuana was the thing that was looked at compassionately. And I think in the popular mindset, when you begin to look at these older people, sick people using marijuana as a medicine, and you can see they're really using it as a medicine, you begin to think, if they can use it as a medicine, and oh, by the way, they don't seem any different when they're smoking than when they don't, is it really what I thought it was? And maybe all those people using it not really for medicine 
maybe it's not such a big deal as we thought it was with them either. And there's that kind of subtle transformation about thinking about the people who do this. And this is what you've done recently, isn't it? That Voltface is um, helping along certain campaigns of a, a normalization process of people that use cannabis for medicinal reasons. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I completely agree with Ethan about uh, the the coming out and the parallels with the civil rights movement and with the gay community. It's such a big step at the preliminary stage of getting people um, just to start normalizing it and discussing it as an issue. And with medical cannabis, it obviously is a lot, a lot more... Uh, emotive of a topic and it does provoke more of a conversation in people and it does force people into questioning their attitudes towards drugs that recreational drug use wouldn't because for a, a lot of people I think in the UK recreational drug use just isn't really an issue it's just something that they may have some views on that they haven't really thought through that strongly if they're not in those circles where recreational drug use is common and they just don't think about it but then when you're presented with someone who's criminalized for using something which vastly improves the quality of their life whilst they're suffering in chronic pain it really forces you to challenge why you think the way you do about drug use and and what what your opinions really are and this um, is something that uh, Ethan said last night at the lecture is that when Proposition 19 was going through, for people that don't know Proposition 19, it was the California ban it to legalise cannabis in quotation marks in 2010. Um, you said that, and it was really interesting, that even though Proposition 19 failed, the media perception and the, and the societal perception was, oh, why didn't that pass? So there was a normalisation process almost instinctively because of that. Right, and only a year before... The assumption had been it will never pass, right? So you had this rapid transition from people thinking that legalization of marijuana can never win majority support to all of a sudden being how come it didn't get that support? And that really was, I think, a pivotal moment. Uh, you know, people started to t- there had been other legalization issues before that in in Nevada and California and Alaska, and nobody had taken them all that seriously. But California is such a huge state; it attracted so much attention. And that year, 2010, was a sort of beginning to be crossover year when the country was beginning to hit the 50% point of support for legalizing marijuana. So since that time, it's felt more and more like we're building a majority. Now, mind you, I mean, I said this last night, compared to the gay rights and gay marriage and marriage equality issue, we have a lot more obstacles. I mean, if you look at the public opinion polls, roughly the same support, the same percent of the population in the U.S., roughly 55% support legalizing marijuana and support gay marriage, legalizing gay marriage. But gay marriage has the courts on their side and the U.S. Supreme Court. We don't have the courts on our side. They have the White House and a growing number of governors and senators. We have sort of the White House a little bit and almost no statewide politicians. You know, we have to deal with a commodity and it's the possession and trafficking and production of that commodity that still is criminalized and that it can be usually profitable, especially when it is criminalized. In the field of gay rights, you don't have something analogous. So we have many more challenges to go from illegality to legality. But I think there's well, we'll see what happens on election day, but there's so much momentum right now that if it all goes well, I think we are, we're probably past the tipping point. I think we're going to take another leap further past the tipping point. You know, we won't be quite locked in, but we'll be getting more secure. And that's a really good segue into California, because as you said, we're coming up to a big day in America. Um, as you said, there's you know, a jostling for position on who's going to lead the country, which... 
Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to think about within that, but there's also going to be ballots of legalization, California being one of them. And recently, California have done something pretty good in kind of stomping down on the privatized prison system, which is where uh, George's interest no doubt comes in. How did that happen? How did we? Uh, can you explain about the privatized prison system? Because a lot of people don't know about this, what yeah. goes on. Well, I mean, I should say that in the United States and our advocacy efforts are trying, trying to roll back the drug war and trying to roll back incarceration, we've had to deal with two opponents. One is the private prison corporations, which are especially powerful in the South and some other places. And then we've had to deal with the prison guards unions who have been, who aggressively, you know, uh, opposed our efforts to reduce the punitiveness of drug sentences in basically so that they can increase their overtime pay. And just thank God they hate one another, that the private prison corporations and the prison guard unions hate one another, or we'd be dealing with a really powerful alliance against us. So fortunately, we're beginning to see a real pushback. So just a few weeks ago, the Obama administration announced that they are going to ban any privatization of federal prisons. And there's a growing number of states that are saying we're not going to go that way. And meanwhile, the prison guards unions, they've kind of become a little less venal. I mean, because they're unions, they tend to be more identified with the political left, with the Democrats. And when you're with the Democrats, you tend to be a little more anti-mass incarceration. So those obstacles remain in a big way. Um, but not quite, uh, you know, as venal as they were before. But I will say, should I just say about the election coming up? Um, I mean, if you look, first of all, vis-a-vis -vis Clinton and Trump, I mean, on, on the bigger picture, you know, we in America and the entire world, and I have to take off my Drug Policy Alliance hat in saying this for legal reasons, but speaking personally, you know, the election of, of Donald Trump would obviously be a nightmarish disaster for my country and the world. And it's just basically because of the man's character or lack thereof. I mean, in lack of judgment. I mean, it's just, you know, America's been accustomed to, you know, I guess we've become such a reality TV consuming population that somehow this can pass for acceptable and normal. And no matter how offensive and idiotic this guy sounds, somehow he still becomes a legitimate vehicle for 40% of Americans for expressing their frustrations, legitimate frustrations oftentimes the way things are. That said, vis-a-vis -vis drug policy, Clinton, I mean, she doesn't have drug policy reform in her bones, and she, I don't think she's ever smoked marijuana, and she's uncomfortable around it, but she's reassured people that she's going to be at least as good as President Obama has been, and he's been pretty good in the last couple of years in allowing this stuff to proceed. Trump, personally, could probably go any which way. I mean, I think 20 years ago, he once said we should legalize it all, and then he'll be in favor of the drug war the next day, and he's all over the map. But the problem there is that even though he doesn't really listen to anybody, the fact that the people closest to him, that Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, who's been kind of mixed on drug policy, but was the only guy in the Republican primary saying, you better smoke your weed now, because if I'm president, I'm going to bust you all, that's not reassuring. And then he's got Mike Pence, his vice presidential, you know, nom you know, partner. And Pence, right-wing Republican, really pro-drug war type of guy. And then one of his biggest financial backers is Sheldon Adelson, Adelson, the famous Republican right-wing casino mogul from Las Vegas. And he's a nightmare on this issue. He's the only guy ever to spend millions of dollars trying to defeat the legalization of medical marijuana. So Trump's surrounded by some very bad people when it comes to moving in the right direction on drug policy. As for the ballot initiatives, Marijuana legalization is going to be on the ballot in California, which is the biggie, 
and Nevada, Arizona, Maine, and Massachusetts. So five states altogether. Medical marijuana is going to be on the ballot in Florida and Arkansas and North Dakota. And there's a little fix-it initiative in Montana. So there's going to be nine votes around the country, nine states voting on some type of marijuana reform uh, this November, next month. And I'm assuming we're going to win at least half of those. I don't think we'll be able to keep our record. I mean, we've won five in a row in the last few elections, but I don't think we'll be able to keep that record intact. But I think we'll probably get a majority. Do you think you'll manage to break out of the West Coast or do you think that at the moment it's a, it's a kind of West Coast phenomenon? Well, the betting now is that California's got the best odds. Two big polls recently showed 60% in favor and under 40% against. And hopefully that'll – things always tighten up before Election Day, but hopefully we'll, we'll lock it in there. But people would then say that the second and third best chances are Maine and Massachusetts. So that's taken it to the Northeast mm. and that Arizona and Nevada – which are you know, more mixed Republican, Republican-Democrat states, those are the ones we're a little more concerned about right now. Now, anything can be turned upside down. You never know. And then when it comes, you know, in the United States, the option of a ballot initiative, of a vote by the people to change a law, uh, exists in roughly half the states, and they're disproportionately out west. But when it comes to those states where you can only move things forward through the legislative process, most people would bet it's going to be in New England. It's going to be Vermont or Rhode Island um, or uh, Connecticut, one of those states that could be the first to do it that way. So I think we will break out. It's still a coastal phenomenon, right? It's West Coast and Northeast. But, you know, Colorado's not on the coast. And uh, uh, Nevada, Arizona are not. So it's moving more, you know, into the Western, but not quite. And then the South, of course, will be last. On the political spectrum, um how would you say, George? We're pretty much spread here, aren't we? It isn't really a left or right issue. I mean, libertarians dominantly favour drug policy reform, but you do get a lot of right-wing um, people as well that are interested, don't you? Yeah, you do. And interestingly, it's not, it's not so much of a left-right issue, like you said, because the libertarian right-wing are, are in favour of drug reform because it stifles markets and, uh, you know, it's, it's, part, it's a very civil liberty He's issue. You can understand why the libertarian right are keen on drug policy reform. And equally, a lot of people would assume that it's a sort of left-wing issue. But a lot of the Labour's core voters, particularly in the North, have always been most vehemently anti any drug reform. I think there's a big issue around how uh, the idea of drug reform is is phrased, because a lot of people in the North see the harms associated with uh, addicted drug users with a variety of mental health and uh, social deprivation and, and you know, really difficult lives uh, with a lot of acquisitive crime and associated violence that drug trade's involved with. And legalising drugs or reforming drug policy is often seen as likely to exacerbate that. But So there's not an understanding between how much of the things that people are scared about are actually caused by the drug policy and not the drugs. And it is a difficult thing to try and convey to somebody who's not like Ethan and I talk about this stuff all day, every day. Um, but if you're not, if you're not in that world and someone says to you the, the, the answer to these problems associated with drugs is to make more drugs, you know, readily available, it doesn't, it's not intuitively appealing to people if that's all they're hearing. But yeah, we're, we're very spread from left to right on who supports this. It's 
And that's what jumped out last night at the lecture is, again, the framing, the phrasing and the framing, because you said something that was quite close to a point I make about when Professor Nutt released a report um, a few years ago. Uh, he did a lecture. I can't remember. I can't remember. I'll find it. If you go to a car, stop and search. I'll put the link up. It'll be scrolling as we play. Um, but basically, he quizzed the public on what they'd like to see in terms of classification. So we got a fairly similar classification to what America's got, class A, B, C, scheduling one and two, three on medical values. He found that the general public wanted a class A system for cannabis, so the hardest possible punishment. But when he quizzed them further on what kind of punishment that entailed, they didn't want criminalisation. So the framing is... Legalisation infers a free-for-all, whereas regulation and blah, 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 you know, the buzzwords that we use infers that, oh, actually, we, we can have some control on this, which is what I think America have been really successful at doing. Well, you know, I mean, the hard thing for people to understand is that there's a common assumption that prohibition represents the ultimate form of regulation when in fact it represents the abdication of regulation, yeah. right? Prohibition basically means you put it all in the hands of law enforcement, the entire markets are criminalized, but effectively if there's a demand, it means the whole supply and distribution is not regulated by government at all. It's essentially regulated, if at all, by criminal organizations and by criminal markets. And so that therefore, and, and conversely, when people think legalization, that legalize means free for all, they hate it. They don't want their, the drugs around their kids, they don't want it all over the place, they on mass marketing, but when they understand that legalization actually means taxation, control, and regulation, then people can go around with it. You know, I mean, they can get their minds around it, and that's really been pivotal. You know, we see that for the the key swing voters, the ones who are on the fence on this issue, when they begin to say like. Look, law enforcement's had their chance. They've had decades of trying to control this stuff, and they failed. I mean, marijuana as, is, is as available in society and to teenagers as ever before. It's still a criminal market. You know, why keep going with something that hasn't worked? It's time to try something new. And interestingly, I think you're right. And we do now have examples of how you can improve, reduce drug-related harms and improve the situation through... through legalization because if people now look at tobacco um, in the UK that's heavily controlled and taxed and we're starting to see that a real reduction in use and a reduction in uh, deaths related to tobacco use because it's being taxed and controlled effectively and there's good public messaging around the health there's also certain restrictions on smoking in public places etc so you can have a lot more control and i don't think anyone out there would think that we'd uh you know be more successful in reducing the harms associated with tobacco by banning it outright now that would be a, a completely untenable uh, position for a, a politician but we're being really successful at, at using different tools in a regulated market to allow people access to back tobacco with reducing its harm i'll tell you george a few years ago we did a poll in the u.s and we asked the question would you support a federal law that would prohibit the production and sale of cigarettes in the next five or ten years and over 40 percent of the american public said yes and the two groups which were the most supportive of all were older conservative religious people and young people. 
And what's fascinating with young people, right, is they tend to be more liberal in their beliefs about things. But I think what had happened was they'd become so accustomed to all the restrictions on tobacco and tobacco and cigarettes had become so demonized that they start to feel, you know, here a ban, there a ban, everywhere a ban, ban, right? And, and let's just go with it. And so there, there is a kind of loss of consciousness around the ways in which prohibitions, criminalization of markets, lands up generating all sorts of other evils. The other thing that you see happening is that as cigarettes becomes more and more demonized and more regulated, what you see is that sort of middle class, upper middle class people are less likely to do it. And so cigarette smoking begins to become disproportionately concentrated among poor people, where it looms larger as a source of satisfaction in their lives. When you don't have the money to pay for all sorts of consumer goodies or take trips, you know, the pleasure of the cigarette is quite significant. And so you begin to get all the class-based prejudice and stigmas, which can result potentially down the road in landing, you know, in regulation leading into prohibitions of sorts. So I think we have to watch out. That it, we, I think almost all of us can agree about the benefits of taxing and regulating cigarettes strongly and, and restricting where it can be consumed. I think, I think we, most of us who don't smoke like that. But we have to be careful that we're not pushing the stigmatization and demonization so far that we're going to that you know, our children and grandchildren are going to grow up saying, why don't we just make this stuff all illegal? On the back of that, we always get chucked to this in reform. Alcohol. People say, well, alcohol is legal, it's regulated, and yet we've got more problems with that than ever. What is the answer to that? What, what is the comeback when people use that argument? Well, I mean, I mean, one of them is one that's a little hard for people to buy, but, you know, David Nutt, the, you know, very, very highly respected British expert and, and uh, professor about drugs. I mean, one of the points he'll make, and I think many of us will make, is that hard as it is to believe that Western world kind of landed up legalizing and acculturating two of the most dangerous substances known to mankind, alcohol and tobacco. Right, I mean, tobacco in the form of cigarettes. There's nothing that has such a, that combines such a high rate of addiction with such a high rate of deadliness over the long term. And alcohol is almost unique in terms of its association with violent behavior. In addition to being damaging to the body if you consume large amounts of it. And we sometimes tend to think, well, we must have accepted these drugs as legal because they're relatively. If these ones are so bad and they're legal, those other ones must be really bad. When in fact the science shows that the drugs, even cocaine and heroin and opiates in their pure forms are actually much less damaging to the human body than alcohol and cigarettes are. But that's almost impossible for people to believe. And that's one of the great challenges. I think the other argument, of course, is we did alcohol prohibition in the U.S. Um, didn't work very well. And marijuana prohibition, other drug prohibitions are failing just as badly. Well, with cocaine and heroin, it, it may be hard to move to the option. It may be good reasons not to move to the option of legalizing it like alcohol and cigarettes. But with marijuana, which any scientific body would say is less dangerous for the society at large and for the average individual than either cigarettes or alcohol, well, there's no reason to keep this thing illegal. I think from our side, we can look at marketing as well, don't you think, George? Uh, we've In this country, and I think America's the same, is that we've got ridiculous amounts of marketing on alcohol. Yeah, and it definitely does divide opinion, There, are, whether we're managing alcohol in the right way. And there can be a lot of problems with the the messaging of saying, well, cannabis is, is safer than alcohol, so 
let's regulate it because that then makes the association with alcohol and people are aware that alcohol is a huge social problem and tens of thousands of people die in the UK because of it and there's it's one of the major cause of domestic violence and incidents of random violence on the street etc so it's a huge problem but as Ethan said we've seen it banned and the effects were worse in the US um, and these risks exist and you can't eliminate them we know now that you can't try and through prohibition eradicate use of a drug if that's what you wanted you need to accept that there are risks and those risks have to be managed so and a lot of the time I try and avoid any sort of discussion of alcohol because there's it's a, it's a, it's a problem but I think a lot of people even if you mention alcohol in the same breath as cannabis they're worried that we're going to have you know bars popping up and it'll be a huge social problem in the way that alcohol can be but I knowing the drug and knowing people who use it I know that it won't be the same social problem so I think that is a part of an outing and people understanding how it's used and that it won't cause well, I'll, tell you, you know, I'll say in the US our sense has been that the argument that marijuana is less dangerous than alcohol that that's a useful argument to just keep floating out there and to keep finding opportunities to put the evidence out there so that people hear it people begin to think about it they begin to custom to it it's not the w argument that's going to win in a moment or win in a election, but it's the argument that's grounded in science that you want generally out there, right? And But when it comes to when we're running initiatives and campaigns, at that point, we don't run with that argument. At that point, we find that the two most powerful arguments that people who are ambivalent are moved by when it comes to go for legalizing or keep it the way things are, the first one is we'd rather have the government taxing this and collecting this and spending the revenue on we want as taxpayers rather than having the gangsters collecting the money and using it to power themselves. That's first. And the second is we'd rather have the cops focusing on real crime instead of busting young people for weed. Right. And those two arguments are the ones, you know, let's control it, put it into responsible hands. Those are the ones that really tend to move people. Right. And we're quite parallel as well between the two countries in racial disparity. It's awful, or it's worse in the UK than what it is, I think. Yeah, potentially. We need to, there's been some good research on that and Release did some good work on it, but we need, uh, we need more really. But what's obvious is that it is at least as bad in terms of proportion. Um, and, it, and it's a huge, yeah, it's a huge problem, the racial disparity, especially... Um, especially considering the problems that we've got in our prisons at the moment where we have completely overcrowded prisons. We don't have the scale of incarceration that America has, but we have hugely overcrowded and understaffed prisons um, and larger prisons where we're getting more and more people uh, of ethnic minorities put in prison for something that somebody from a white middle class background would never have got caught for and then being forced into a prison where you know, radicalization is is increasing in prisons and gangs form for protection and you're just driving more and more social harms by sending to people for prison for minor drug offenses that they should never have been caught for in the first place. You know, I, I think one of the things we found, oftentimes people, especially white people, will believe that the reason blacks are getting more arrested is because they are selling drugs more than white people or using drugs more. And in point of fact, the evidence suggests that's not true. 
I mean, we're pretty damn sure in the United States that if you were to randomly stop 100 black kids and 100 white kids in almost any city in America and look in their pockets, roughly the same percent of black kids and white kids, by kids I mean teenagers, people mm. in the 20, you know, would have some weed in their pocket. But in every city in America, it's the blacks who are more likely to be arrested, processed through the criminal justice system, get a criminal record, maybe spend time in jail, than the whites. And I think on some level, people begin to realize that that's just simply not fair. I mean, even if you're not particularly sensitive or you're indifferent to the arguments around race, understanding that one group is getting disproportionately punished for something that the, another group is doing just as frequently, people get that on a fairness level. The other thing that's happened in the U.S. is that it didn't happen at first, but now we have more and more of the leadership of the black community, African-American communities, are actually stepping out on the need to change drug policies. We're seeing this with the ballot initiatives where our most you know, historic organization, the NAACP, you know, the old civil rights organization, is supporting marijuana legalization now. And so initially, because of the social conservatism, of black leadership and the ways in which they were linked with the church, they were very hesitant to step out on this issue. And they were hesitant to associate these things with black people. But now the evidence has become so overwhelming and it's become so abundantly clear that these tough drug policies do nothing to protect their communities, but a lot to criminalize their communities. So having black leadership, political leadership, community leadership step out has really been a key part of this whole change. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I watched the vice president debate last night and again they visited upon Stop and Frisk, which is Stop and Search in this country, which watch his podcast is tongue in cheek named after because it's such a big issue to what we do with him leap. Um but they, they're talking about it. Trump saying no, we need to bring back stop and frisk and the vice president is saying the same thing and is that in danger? Are we likely to get re- regress back to that? Well, I mean, to some extent, the federal government doesn't have that much to do with it. They can incentivize local governments one way or another. But the evidence, I mean, Trump was wrong about, about the stop and frisk. I mean, in fact, in New York City, which, you know, f- more or less phased out stop and frisk, crime continued to go down even after stop and frisk policies were basically gotten rid of. 
So the argument that you need stop and frisk in order to reduce gun violence or reduce crime is simply not backed up by the evidence. The other thing is when you look across America, cities which did not engage in stop and frisk did just as well or better in reducing crime as those cities which did do stop and frisk. So, I mean, the evidence powerfully stands in the way of what Donald Trump was saying. And, of course, now the courts have determined that stop and frisk actually violates the U.S. Constitution because it's enacted, it's, it's implemented inevitably in such a racially disproportionate way. Right? And it's sort of based upon the notion that somehow the cops can use deception in order to trick people out of exercising their constitutional rights. It was discussed over in here for a while, wasn't it, that we were going to stop recording the numbers because they just really weren't doing any favours to what was going on in the bigger picture. Yeah, well, the, the way in which we record um, our police activity could be greatly improved because there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest we spend a huge amount on uh, drug policy enforcement for no material benefit to society and quite a considerable harm. But getting numbers and getting organisations like the police force to gather data in such a way that you can make a freedom of uh, information request and understand how they're spending it is difficult. And we had an event at the Conservative Party conference uh, with Crispin Blunt the other day and the uh, MP and he was saying that he got told to stop asking about how much drug enforcement cost because it was a politically unacceptable question to ask. So you've got politicians within the establishment asking and wanting this data and we in wider society want the data, but it's deliberately not being recorded in such a way that we can, you know, present it to people and say, look, this is ridiculous. It's a huge waste of money. I mean, really, to some extent, the cost-benefit arguments, fiscal arguments and cost-benefit arguments are potentially the great unifying argument across the political spectrum because what you can show is that from the liberal labor side, of, liberal and the left-wing side of definition of the term and, 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 and labor, that actually spending more money on sort of helping programs for the poor – Right, actually delivers a better return than spending on incarceration. Conversely, you can show to conservatives who are reluctant to spend money on certain areas of helping the poor that actually spending X number of dollars on these types of assistance to people or harm reduction programs or whatever actually results in a reduction in the amount of money you need to spend on law enforcement or emergency room or public health services. I mean, if you take just the most radical example in Switzerland, where you know they were trying to figure out what do you do with these people who have been using heroin on and off for many years, and they're burning out on the life of living the life as a street heroin addict, but they can't imagine living without their lady love heroin. And they tried drug-free treatment, they tried jail, they tried methadone, they tried everything. All, each of those things have worked for different people. Nothing worked. And so the Swiss finally said, well, we're going to set up these little clinics, heroin maintenance clinics, where people can come in if they've been addicted to street heroin and get legal heroin in a clinic. It was something that Britain always done in a very small way with individual physicians, but mm. Switzerland did it in a more systematic way. And initially people recoiled, how can you give junkies the junk they want or why should we spend money on them and all this sort of stuff? But eventually rolled this out. And then they did the cost-benefit studies. And they found that the heroin prescribing, even though it was expensive, that the savings on criminal justice and public health care costs 
that the conservatives had no choice but to pay for, more than paid for the cost of these heroin prescribing programs. And that people getting illegal heroin were beginning to get their lives together and engaging in less crime and all this sort of stuff. So if there's some way, I mean, obviously in your country, especially in mine right now, but your country a lot too, emotion is such a dominant driving force with the public now, right? It's, it's, it always is, but we're in a moment now where people's rational minds seem to be kind of clicked off and their emotional sentimentality, whether it's fear of this or fear of that, is dominant. Um, but I think we have to keep putting out those arguments, not just arguments, put out the facts around the cost-benefit of moving in a new direction, because that can be the common ground, not just with libertarian conservatives, but even I think with fiscally conservative, socially conservative conservatives, if they allow themselves to listen to that. So on the back of that point, you was, you was making this last night at the Vault Face lecture, is it is a perception issue. As we said at the start of this, the image perception of people that use cannabis is the other, um, especially as you work your way up the, the drug chain, the, the, you know, the perception always gets more degraded the more you associate with the harder drug. Um, how did... It, sorry, just interestingly on that point, there's some strange quirks, though, to perception and drug use in the UK. For instance, I know people who work in the city of London on very good jobs, very high paid, who will openly discuss and do cocaine with their boss and their colleagues on, on a night out because it seemed to be something that, you know, go-getting people who like a drink after work and it's fine and it's an acceptable part of that small culture but they would recoil from the art from from cannabis and they would smoke it personally but if asked would say oh no i don't smoke cannabis but would be open about their cocaine use when you've got a demonstrably more harmful drug um, it's also true i mean the psychedelics i mean the psychedelics there's no drugs i mean the drugs which have the greatest ratio of benefit potential benefit to harm are the psychedelics because they're almost impossible to get addicted to and here i'm talking about lsd and mushrooms and psilocybin all these things like that so the the upside is significant for most people the downside pretty minimal and there's a whole world there that looks down on all the other drugs thinks these are the ones that should be regulated and legalized is even dubious on the marijuana thing which they see as a you know you know so it is true what you're saying george that there is a people splitting it out and can you're right also right that cannabis is the one more generically seen that way but there's a lot of interesting exceptions to it yeah definitely it's interesting with the lsd like you were saying there's more and more research coming out with lsd and psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs for actually treatment of addiction so they can be hugely beneficial not just the fact that they're not addictive as drugs because they give you diminishing returns if you do them frequently but also they can be used to treat people with alcoholism and other drug addictions and that research is hitting huge barriers because one of the big things that i think the public don't understand about drug prohibition is it's a ban on research as well um, the way in which drugs are scheduled in the uk will deem certain illegal drugs to have no medical uh value whatsoever when uh, that, that medical value can't be ascertained one way or another because you can't do the research because they're banned. So it's a self-defeating system. And we've got these drugs that are potentially hugely beneficial for a whole range of different, um, different illnesses and ailments. And we can't, we can do bits and bobs of research, but not under the scale that would be needed to demonstrably prove. And it's uh, it's clinical like expensive as well. The, 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 the hoops you have to jump through just to get any kind of measure of research on this is ridiculous. You know, like Professor Nutt and uh, Dr. Carhart Harris, they're doing things in this uh, respective issue right as we speak, aren't they? And they just, it's so tied up in a knot. 
Yeah, it really is. Work, they work closely with the Beckley Foundation, which is uh, a think tank I used to work for, um, who are really focused on this issue. They're particularly involved in uh, the medicinal value of illegal substances. And it's huge. Cannabis now, people understand that there's, you know, a whole range of illnesses for the treatment of pain, um, uh, for people with sleep problems, people um, with MS and also... PTSD. Yeah. PTSD. Uh, well, PTSD, LSD, again, is potentially very valuable in the treatment of PTSD, and we need a lot more research in that field. But people don't understand at all. When you talk to your average person about drugs, you t LSD comes up frequently ranked as the most dangerous drug with the least value, when in fact, on by all the sort of measures in The Lancet where they try to do a scale of drugs... LSD is frequently the least dangerous drug, the one that is least physically damaging to your body and um, least addictive and least associated harms to society, etc. So there's real discord between perception and reality around drugs on so many different levels. I mean, this is just to clarify, and for all the listeners of this podcast, is that with every drug can be used in a dangerous way. And every drug can be used safely, whether we're talking about alcohol, cigarettes, heroin, or LSD. You know, unfortunately, with drugs like LSD or MDMA, ecstasy, you know, the vast majority of people who use those things use them safely without any harm, and oftentimes with quite beneficial results in their lives. But when you get the ecstasy overdose, when you get the stupid kid who thought he could fly with doing LSD and wasn't with his friends watching out for him, those are the ones that land up in the headlines. Conversely, when you get the cancer deaths from cigarettes and the alcohol deaths and all these other sorts of things, they're almost seen as routine, as a cost of living in a modern society. And so we go back to this very you know, unfair and, and odd way in which media presents the harms associated with these drugs. We're going to start to wrap up now because um, poor old Georgie has got an appointment and he's get to and he's he's putting it off because of this podcast. So thanks for that. And look, Ethan's got to get off to back to New York at some point. So to wrap up quickly, two points that I want to make is that so the election is coming up. What can we expect? Can we on both on the ballot initiatives and whoever gets in at the White House? How is it going to run from there? Well, I'm, I'm we're right now. I mean, the odds makers are giving Hillary an 80 percent chance of victory on Election Day. Now, that can bounce around. You never know what's going to happen in the next five weeks. Um, but basically, it's looking promising. And I think when she comes in, she's going to be fairly progressive. I and mean, let's not forget a year ago when she formally announced she was going to run for president, the first speech she gave was on the need for criminal justice reform. And even though she's uncomfortable with the cannabis issue, she's letting people know privately she's not going to do the wrong thing on this stuff. So I think we'll get to see an extension of the late-term Obama policy, which will be a relatively good thing. I mean, love to see it go further. On the ballot initiatives, you know, I mean, California winning, it's going to reverberate around the country. It's going to reverberate into the halls of Congress. And importantly, it's going to reverberate in Mexico because the one thing that's going to change that whole debate there where 100,000 people have died in their drug wars the last few years is when California legalized marijuana. Then the absurdity of spending large amounts of money to have the Mexican military and police eradicating marijuana plants and chasing, arresting people for marijuana, you know, it's going to be, how do we keep doing that when California is getting a billion a year in tax revenue and regulating this stuff and taking the crime out of it? So I'm feeling pretty optimistic right now. You know, in America, 
you know, when I set up my organization a long time ago, it was partially with the intent of trying to educate Americans about the intelligent ways that Europeans were dealing with drugs, especially on the harm reduction and criminal justice front in Switzerland, Portugal, Netherlands, etc. And now we still have work to do there, but it's mostly with the drugs other than marijuana. Meanwhile, I take this almost, you know, for most of my life, whenever I travel outside the U.S., I would begin by apologizing to my audience as an American for the incredible havoc that my government and country have wreaked around the world with our global war on drugs. And now I still have to issue that apology, but now I can also be proud of the fact that America's leading the world when it comes to the innovative and pragmatic regulation of cannabis. That feels good. So one quick word from George, then just, you can shoot off because thanks so much for doing that. But um, so quickly to wrap up, uh, one minute sentence each. We're, we're going to have people listening to this that aren't involved in reform, uh, but know about the drug war now. What can they do to get involved? How can we inspire the next generation to actually do something about this to sort this out? George? Um, I think the theme I'd pick up on was the outing we've spoken about. Now, I don't want people, you know, doctors, teachers and lawyers to go running around to their boss, <laughs> screaming their mouths off about all the drugs they've ever done. But I do think Ethan's... Exp- great, though, yeah, <laughs> I do think just where possible, be open and frank about drug use and speak to people, uh, you know, from the heart about the truth of all the good and bad experiences of you and your family members and your friends have had with drugs. Just a rational informed debate an open culture yeah so thanks George and then Ethan what can we do what I mean I, I, well? I second what, what George just said and, and just to add to that the more informed and knowledgeable you are about drugs and drug policy the more effective you will be as an advocate so learn 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 and know this stuff and then remember that ultimately effective advocacy is not just about telling people what you think or what you know it's about using your language and using your skills in order to persuade people to think in the correct way and to be better informed about this. Perfect. We're going to take a couple of pictures and then that do. We can conclude it on that. I'll do an outro later. So thanks so much to Ethan and George for that because they both held up their schedules quite considerably to make sure that we got some decent top content for that. So thanks, guys. So what do you reckon, US election, by the time this goes out, I think there's only about eight days before uh, before America decides on both the president and the various ballot initiatives. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch, definitely. The world possibly can change, as we, as we know it, in drug policy terms and in literal terms. A little bit of a lighter note, I'd like to just give you a bit of a heads up what's going on on Stop and Search. I'm hopefully updating the equipment. Because when we do live broadcasts, we bring along our brilliant producer, Nikki, who you may have heard tamper with the sound when I do my intros and outros. Thanks for that, Nikki, you lovely man. Nikki gives me some guidelines on and tips with regards to equipment because I fully hold my hands up that I'm a technophobe. And bearing in mind I used to be a musician, even then I didn't know what equipment did. I was pretty rudimentary. So Nikki and Drew at Let Me Look TV, they're the tech guys for us. They're the ones that help us out at the podcast. They're both giving me advice on how to update the equipment. Because what I've been loath to admit is when I do these intros and outros, I'm doing it into my phone. These are phone memos. So you might understand they're not the greatest of quality. But because we're getting quite a lot of interest in the podcast now, we're going to make sure that the, the equipment... Hopefully, it's up to spec so we can capture some really, really good voices. We've got some agreed in principle interviews that are coming forward that I'm quite excited about, not only because of who they are, but also because of what the content they're promising to bring. 
So hopefully soon we'll make sure that these intros and outros are going to be slightly better quality. And I do, I'm kind of cringing behind this um, phone as we speak and in apologies that it's such dodgy, grainy quality. But anyway, a few thank yous. Uh, my name is Ad. Thank you so much for the podcast artwork. Drew Let Me Look TV, as just mentioned, and Nikki, uh, the producer, for just generally making sure that these things go smoothly. I'm also going to change it ever so slightly when the podcasts are going to be released. Uh, we've, we've organically worked ourselves into a position where we're going to make sure that each podcast is released on the first Monday of every month. I just think that's slightly easier to remember because at the moment we've been doing it every four weeks but now we've actually got ourselves a bit of a, a mark in the sand of when we can do it so look out for that first monday of every month that's going to be when stop and search is out i'm hoping to expand the content in 2017 as well so that we can get more than one a month bear with me on that because i don't know how scrubius pip does it he does one a week it is a full-time job to do a, one podcast of the week i don't know where he gets the time energy but also travelling as well. So yeah, bear in mind for that. We're going to try our best. Um, so please do come back, subscribe to us, um, do all the usuals. If you can find us on iTunes, give us a rating. Give us a only if it's a nice one though. You, know, you can keep a little bit of silence if you don't think we're any good. That's fine. But if you think we're good, then you know please do give us a five star and a nice review. That really helpful. Um, so thank you very much again. This is number six. Number seven is already recorded. I'm going to just about to go and edit that and see what happens. So until next time, and also another quick thank you to Johnny Borrell for doing our intro and outro music. So episode seven is going to be out on Monday the 5th of December. I've just worked that out. I've just had to stop the recording to look at my calendar. Yeah, techno problems. So until then... Thanks so much again for listening. Find us at ukleap.org, at ukleap on Twitter, at Jason Tron, that's me. And thanks a lot. See you again soon. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.